Kia ora tato. My name's Neil Atkinson. I'm the Chief Historian at Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, and delighted to welcome you all here today to our, our monthly history seminar, and I'm particularly delighted to welcome Dr. Grant Morris to speak about uh, James, James Prendergast. Um, Grant is a Senior Lecturer in Law at Victoria University, um, with research and teaching interests in legal history, uh, including New Zealand's legal profession from 1860 to 1900, law and literature, and alternative dispute resolution. Please welcome Dan. Thanks, Neil. What I'd like to do today is obviously talk about my book, but begin by giving you an overview of the book itself, but also uh, focusing on the thesis of the book and uh, why I wrote the book as well. So I'm going to take that uh, particular part from my speech at the book launch that we were lucky enough to hold at the old High Court where Prendergast presided. Uh, for some time. And once I've, I've done that, and that'll primarily be, be read, I'll just talk more uh, openly uh, about some different aspects of the book, some of the challenges, and I've got a few slides to show you some of the pictures. And I think that'll take us through to about 10 to 1. I'm very keen to, to have questions as well. Uh, very uh, interested in, in, in views. And I'm imagining that there's uh, some people here today who know uh, a lot about 19th century New Zealand history and will know a bit about Prendergast as well, perhaps even a lot about Prendergast or may have read the book. And there'll be some who have a passion for, for history but may not know uh, about Prendergast more than um, what Neil just said, his famous quote. Or, uh, the book itself is uh, originally uh, taken from my PhD, uh, which was done both in law and history. It was uh, the two subjects I was studying combined into to legal history. And it really touches on my interests in uh, the Treaty of Waitangi and uh, cultural encounter in New Zealand during the 19th century, but also the history of the New Zealand legal profession. Now, one of those areas, the first one, uh, as we as we well know, uh, has a very rich historiography uh, connected with it, and especially over the last 30, 40 years. For a brief time, I did work uh, for the Office of Treaty Settlements and was able to engage in that, uh, that process. The second area, though, the history of the New Zealand legal profession is uh, very sparsely um, written about. Uh, there's very few academics operating in that, e that area, and what has been written over the years is often in uh, coming from practitioners who have got a bit of spare time or have retired. Very interesting, but uh, there's not a lot uh, that's being produced. So in terms of a, bio a biography, a legal biography, uh, there are very few in New Zealand that you'd consider academic uh, legal biographies. In fact, probably about you know three or four over the last 25 years that have been published. I think I did calculate that that my one's probably the longest single uh, legal biography, uh, academic legal biography that's been published. So it's an area that could well do with, with more research and um, definitely I'm hoping to do more uh, in the future. So let's let's start with this, this overview and talking about the, the thesis of the book and why I wrote it, and then, as I said, I'll I'll just talk more openly about the uh, the whole process of writing it and some of the interesting things contained within it. Uh, 
Prendergast was arguably New Zealand's dominant legal profession during the period 1865 to 1899, which as we know was a absolutely vital, formative, controversial, dynamic uh, period of New Zealand's history. He first served 10 years as Attorney General from 1865 to 1875 and then 24 years as Chief Justice, as the third Chief Justice of New Zealand. Uh, after William Martin, after Arnie, then came Prendergast, followed then by uh, Stout. This was a formative period in New Zealand's history during which the settler state was consolidated. Prendergast played a key role in this process. As I've already said, one of my specialty areas is the history of the New Zealand legal profession and in choosing to write a legal biography, I was very aware that few existing biographies, that there were few existing biographies in this area and the ones that did exist were of what we might call progressive lawyers or judges, especially in relation to Māori issues, so those who were in many ways ahead of their times. Uh, whether it's Stout or William Martin, uh, perhaps could be described in some respects as humanitarian in their time, uh, they tend to dominate. Prendergast is considered, as Neil said, the villain of New Zealand's legal history uh, these days, and this is primarily due to the Weparata decision in 1877, in which Prendergast and William Richmond, his uh, co-judge in the Wellington area at that time, ruled that the treaty was, quote, a simple nullity. The Weparata decision also undermined the presence of native title in our legal system. It's primarily, I don't want to get too much into uh, technical legal matters, matters, but the case is primarily about native title rather than the Treaty of Waitangi. Of course there are connections and, and overlaps, but uh, that is what it's about first and foremost. The biography is a comprehensive treatment of Prendergast's personal and professional life. It tells of his privileged upbringing and legal training in London, his adventures in Gold Rush Victoria, his rapid rise to power in 1860s Dunedin and Wellington, and his long reign at the top of the New Zealand legal profession. I analysed Prendergast's roles as Attorney General and Chief Justice in detail. In particular, the book looks at his contribution to New Zealand's case law and statute law, and you'll see in the book that there is a, a pretty chunky section which is uh, for want of a better word uh, or phrase, it's case analysis and statutory interpretation. Uh, there's a lot in the book which could be considered a general bio bio biography, um, but there is that section uh, on cases and statutes which, which very much makes it a, a legal book as well. It also has a strong focus on Prendergast's pivotal role during the New Zealand wars and during the invasion of Parihaka. The study of Prendergast's life provides a window into the development of several important locations, including London, Victoria in Australia, Dunedin, and in particular Wellington, including the courtroom, uh, the old High Court, which uh, Prendergast presided in for most of his judicial career. It also sheds lights on, uh, light on other influential figures, including William Richmond, uh, George E. Barton, uh, barrister in Wellington, Robert Stout, who we all know, and Governor Arthur Gordon, most well known for his involvement in the Parihaka um, uh, situation in 1881. Personal papers provided me with insights into Prendergast's family life, including the important influence of his father, uh, Michael Prendergast QC, who was also a judge in London, and Prendergast's wife Mary, and also the tragic lives of his two older brothers. Just to give you an idea of uh, the 
interesting nature of Prendergast life. One of the most exciting events uh, was his time on the Victorian goldfields in the mid-1850s. It's not something we usually uh, connect Prendergast with. He was an unfortunate gold miner. He lasted only a few few months on the fields, nearly died of dysentery, and had to be rescued by his older brother. But he's persistent. He decided to stay in Victoria and become an administrator, uh, but ended up feuding with his Protestant Irish superiors, and after a few years gave up and headed back to London. The trip, the Australian trip, seemed like a complete failure, but the lessons he learned formed the basis of his later success when he tried his second time round at the colonies in New Zealand. Uh, the lessons he learned helped him to be successful in New Zealand. I am hopeful that this biography will inspire more of its kind. I definitely think more are needed. There are many major figures in our legal history lacking a comprehensive biography. William Martin is one, he has a biography, but it's a short one and it's quite dated now. Michael Myers, Richard Wilde, Joshua Williams, William Richmond, Alfred Hanlon, Frederick Whitaker. I mean, some of these figures you'll know perhaps through political history, uh, but they're all um, lawyers and judges as well. In fact, only Prendergast, John Salmond, Ethel Benjamin, New Zealand's first female lawyer, the Chapman family, and Robert Stout enjoy full-length scholarly biographies uh, in terms of legal biography. New Zealand's legal profession has a rich history, and it's time to explore this history uh, in more depth, in my opinion. So in terms of why I wrote the book, though apart from wanting to, to, to learn more about the legal profession, Prendergast's current infamy, combined with his long and eventful career, made him a fascinating and challenging choice to study. I wanted to write a legal biography, and I wanted to write one about, because I went through my short list of possible figures to write on, I wanted to write on someone who would pose some real challenges to the biographer and some real historiographical challenges as well. And the fact that, as Neil alluded to, Prendergast was amongst the settler community, very well respected during his time, a pillar of the community, establishment figure, and then became, from the 1970s onwards, the, the as I said, the villain of New Zealand's legal history, is fascinating from a historiographical point of view. He was also vitally important. He had so many different roles, he had so many um, areas in which he was influential that it was a way into that period of New Zealand history as well through Prendergast's life. So there were a number of reasons. It didn't take me long to decide. Matter of fact, my shortlist uh, was pretty short. And to me, Prendergast seemed the, the obvious person to do. So I wanted to explore the historiographical debate around looking at history in its own context versus judging history by the standards of the present. My argument is that the former approach is more useful in understanding history. In writing the biography of Prendergast, I wanted to avoid creating an apology. In particular, I wanted to approach the subject with an open mind and let the historical evidence determine my conclusions. That said, I've taught enough jurisprudence, legal theory, to acknowledge the difficulty in making objective judgments, especially in such an area as biography. I also wanted to challenge some of the revisionist New Zealand history written during the 1970s. Now, this is the historiography that I grew up with and which helped inspire me to become a historian. 
but I've always been uncomfortable with its tendency to provide superficial treatment of key conservative colonial figures. Now, just to, to clarify there, again, it's not about saying, let's resurrect them and write an apology. Actually, they were really good. It's more about let's start treating them as more than just two-dimensional cardboard cutout figures and provide a third dimension and then we can come to more conclusions as to their influence and their role. It may still be overwhelmingly negative, uh, or it may still be consistent with uh, what we had previously thought. But the main problem I saw was that many of these figures, uh, the way in which they're treated in the revisionist history is in a very uh, basic way without a lot of investigation. And so I thought, well, this is an area where perhaps I could provide uh, more context. Prendergast is the most infamous judge in New Zealand's history exclusively due to his legal actions relating to Māori. Without this contextual understanding provided in, in my book, Prendergast does become a cardboard cutout villain. And in my view, this is an inadequate approach to history. In 2004, Giselle Burns summarised this approach in relation to Waitangi Tribunal historiography. And again, as I prefaced, this is an area that I worked in, so I'm very aware of, of, of how the uh, tribunal, how the government goes about dealing with history, with, with settlements. But this is what Giselle said, quote, The European historical characters who appear in these narratives are typecast largely as one-dimensional individuals. This includes the inversion of colonist personas, where they are transformed from heroes to villains, the vague and rather thin descriptions of Crown officials, the negation of difference within the European settler community, and the assumption that all settlers thought and therefore acted in the same manner. The polarisation of Māori and European worldviews and habits of thought as mutually exclusive, and finally the passing of moral judgments and the creation of good and bad characters." End of quote. In, uh, in his book on the We Parata case, my colleague David Williams, Professor David Williams of Auckland, who some of you will know and perhaps even read his book, uh, which gives context to that important decision which Prendergast and Richmond made their uh, judgment. David notes that Prendergast's simple nullity statement, quote, will be mentioned many more times yet during the course of future debates. It is too convenient a stick with which to beat the judges of the past for its constant repetition to cease suddenly as a result of the publication of one book, end of quote. Well, now there are two books for critics to uh, contend with in terms of providing more context. Prendergast's name is only mentioned today in order to condemn him. He is judged by half a quote from a decision he made in partnership with another judge. The biography is not an apology for Prendergast, but rather an attempt to place him in the context of his time and explore the other aspects of his career beyond the Weparata decision, though the book does have a whole chapter on Weparata. By today's standards, Prendergast showed a clear disregard for traditional Māori society. His actions negatively affected Māori. This does not change the fact that Prendergast was an influential leader of the legal profession and one of New Zealand's founding fathers. He was not one of New Zealand's most brilliant judges, but he was capable and highly respected by his colonial peers, including by three men who have given their names to um, just streets down the road there, Stout, Whitmore, Balance. History, and especially biography, should not be about simply labelling figures good or bad, but rather attempting to understand the complexities of human nature. Hence the question mark, Neil said I was going to explain the question mark, hence the question mark in the title of the book. I'm not sure you'll necessarily come to like Prendergast after reading it, but you'll definitely learn more about him.
There's no more apt nor fitting tribute to Prendergast than that of his old associate and rival Robert Stout. They had intersecting careers, ran in parallel, Stout obviously. Um, went on further and took Prendergast's position as Chief Justice for an equally long time. Um, but they knew each other uh, very well. Uh, and they were, I think it was a love-hate relationship would be the best way to describe it. Prendergast and Stout's career had intersected and overlapped since those early days in Gold Rush Dunedin. On Prendergast's death, Stout accurately predicted his legacy. At times, Stout had disagreed with the actions and decisions of Prendergast, so the ambiguity of the eulogy is fitting. So a quote from Stout. I believe he, Prendergast, will not be forgotten by our law students in our future race. He is enshrined in the history of our judiciary, and his name will be recalled as our students study our case law and our legal history. End of quote. So that's hopefully a summary both of Prendergast, but also of the, the thesis um, and of the book and the reasons for writing it as well. Uh, and there, there are a number of reasons, but I, I, I definitely want to get across that historiographical one because in many ways it's, for me, the most interesting one. And it, and it intersects with, with a lot uh, of other writing and um, debates that go on in New Zealand history. What I thought I'd do now, though, is talk a bit more about Prendergast, uh, the historiographical uh, debate that I just talked about there does relate a lot to the Weparata decision uh, and what the book is is trying to take Prendergast beyond just the Weparata decision so I want to talk a bit more about the other aspects as as well and the pictures that I've got for you are actually taken um, from the book so within the book there are some pictures that I uh, have included so I'll just talk a little bit about those, talk a little bit about Prendergast, and then we'll be able to have some uh, questions as well. So there's the man himself. Uh, there's a number of photos and, and portraits of Prendergast, uh, formal ones, and that's the most well-known one in his Chief Justice attire. Uh, looking like every bit the establishment gentleman from the late 19th century. That's Prendergast's father, Michael Prendergast QC, who I think it's fair to say was the most important influence on Prendergast, not just in terms of the profession that Prendergast ended up in, but also in the way that Prendergast conducted himself as well. Michael Prendergast was intelligent, uh, capable, uh, born into the middle class and uh, I suppose ended up in the upper middle class as a judge, as a QC, so not completely a self-made man, but um, getting close to it. Uh, an English gentleman, uh, also quite a controversial figure, tended to uh, get involved in feuds, and some people liked him, some people didn't like him, but he also supported Prendergast's career. When Prendergast returned from the goldfields and decided to uh, go to the bar, be admitted as a lawyer and uh, start a career as a barrister, uh, Michael Prendergast was able to give him patronage, was able to give him support. When Michael Prendergast died in the early 1860s, that's when Prendergast came to New Zealand. Uh, there were major problems in the legal profession in England at that time with overcrowding. Nothing's changed. Um, and you said, Laura, actually, in terms of overcrowding. Uh, the 
move was also because once his father died he lost that patronage, he lost that support from a powerful uh, figure within the, the English London legal community. That's a picture of the, the goldfields and I do argue in the book that the goldfields were pivotal in forming Prendergast's view of how to survive in a colony, how to thrive in a colony and the main lesson he learned was that uh, unless you're very lucky it's usually better to support gold miners than to actually be one uh, yourself. And he, as I said, was very unsuccessful as a gold miner. Uh, he hadn't been admitted to the bar before he went to the goldfields so he couldn't operate as a lawyer in Victoria like his uh, older brother did. Uh, so he was fairly limited, had, once he gave up on the gold fields he was just doing fairly low level administrative work, but when he came to New Zealand he had experience at the bar in London, not a huge amount of experience but enough to come to New Zealand which needed uh, experienced lawyers, which needed um, people to, to help set up its legal system and profession, he was the right place at the right time. Okay, so there you have um, Dunedin, and as I said, uh, right person in the, the right place at the right time. Uh, arrives in Dunedin, 1862, so beginning of the gold rush, uh, becomes the cradle of the New Zealand legal profession during this time. When we talk about Stout, when we talk about Richmond and all these figures from uh, late 19th century New Zealand legal history, most of them operated in Dunedin during the 60s or early 70s uh, and Prendergast was one of them. So within, just to give you an idea of how rapid his rise was, he came 1862 to Dunedin by 1865 he was Attorney General, uh, which is yeah, a, a pretty, even in a colonial society, a fluid colonial society like this is a pretty rapid rise and it's primarily because a, he did good work in Dunedin, but B, there were very few lawyers who had his kind of experience in the English courts, in the London courts. Um, he was nothing special in London, but uh, coming to New Zealand, he definitely stood out amongst his peers. He went to Cambridge, so he had the, the Oxbridge education, he had all of the boxes ticked for your upper middle class gentleman, plus um, practical legal experience as well. He wasn't a particularly inspirational courtroom lawyer, but he was sound, he was methodical, and he did the job. Uh, in, particular, in particular, he, uh, when he started taking on government roles, representing government in various uh, uh, roles, he, he did that very well. So his practice time in Dunedin was very short, um, but very uh, successful. That's the Supreme Court, which we now call the High Court in New Zealand, so it's not the top of the legal system at that time. Um, it sits under the Court of Appeal and then of course the Privy Council sits at the top. So that's, that's on Lambton Quay, and then you've got the terrace behind it there. So that's where Prendergast presided as Chief Justice uh, from 1875 through to 1883. Also where he uh, conducted cases as Attorney General from 1865 through to 1877, uh, sorry, 1875 uh, as well. Long since gone that building, but this one still remains. And of course was done up fairly recently and connected with our new Supreme Court, the old Supreme Court, or what we call the old High Court. Uh, 
performs an important function, a ceremonial function at the moment, both for the legal profession and for the law school. We're able to have lots of our debating, uh, mooting finals uh, there. And if you haven't had a chance to, to go in there, uh, do. It's, it's amazing. That's where we had the launch for the book. So Prendergast presided in the 1883 to, through to 1899. Just to give you an example of, of uh, an incident or an episode of Prendergast's career, which was front page news at the time, uh, dominated the headlines, but completely forgotten about now. Um, the Barton uh, affair in which Georgie Barton, who was a friend and associate of Prendergast in Dunedin, uh, basically uh, got a bit peeved that Prendergast had been elevated to the bench and he hadn't, uh, and started a feud with both Prendergast and Richmond here in Wellington, tried to get Prendergast and Richmond kicked <laughs> off the bench and uh, was ultimately found in contempt of court by the judges imprisoned for a month, which was pretty much unheard of in the uh, British Empire, to imprison a lawyer for contempt, not to find one in contempt, but to be sent to prison. While in prison, he won the seat of Wellington Central uh, <laughs> and then continued, continued his feud in Parliament uh, on trying to get rid of Prendergast and Richmond and remove them from the bench. He was unsuccessful, not surprisingly. By that stage, he had become quite isolated. He did have a following and George Gray and what you might call the, the, the liberal politicians of the time, you know, they, they gave him some very limited support, but he was up against the main establishment and he was also very erratic uh, and soon gave up and um, left, left New Zealand only to return later uh, in the century to be a native land court judge again for a brief time before he started a feud with someone else. So that's Barton, but it's an interesting episode not only for its story and for what it says about the legal profession at the time, but this is the time that Weparata is being decided. And if you look at the historical sources at the time, there's very small reporting on that vital case, which is what is now a vital case about the treaty and native title, and yet this episode completely dominates and it shows you this inversion of what the settler community was focusing on in 1870, 1880s, and yet what we take from it uh, in, in 2015 and the change of emphasis. Now, at that time, obviously, Māori society was focusing on the Weepata decision. It had a, a major effect in terms of precedent, not only the precedent around the treaty and native title, but also what was to be done with particular parcels of land that had been tied up in trusts that weren't, be used, weren't being used for their stated purpose. So both a, 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 in principle and in practice was vitally important. But the settler community, um, while it benefited from the decision, wasn't particularly interested in it in a broad way. That's Richmond. Now, some of you will have, especially if you've involved in the uh, um, Waitangi Tribunal or Office of Treaty Settlements or organisation of that, you'll know Richmond pretty well. Uh, so important figure both in terms of politics. My focus on Richmond is as a judge, and in particular as a judge here in Wellington along with Prendergast. He was Prendergast's probably closest, well, he was definitely Prendergast's closest professional colleague, but probably his closest friend as well from, say, um, 18, uh, 1870s onwards until Richmond's death. And they, their outlook was in many ways similar. 
and so a few chart Richmond's um, views, which of course we have a lot of documentation about because he uh, wrote a lot of personal papers and letters, um, then you start to see commonalities between the two men. If there was a figure out of the ones I mentioned at the beginning who probably needs a full-length scholarly biography, of, this is um, a conservative figure from the time, it's probably Richmond. Um, he has obviously been dealt with in other historical works at some length, but in terms of a, a biography, uh, it would be very useful. There's we uh, Wiramu um, Parata, the Ngāti Taua chief, uh, who took the case, was the plaintiff in the decision. Now, at this point again, I'll refer back to David Williams' book. Uh, my chapter on the, the treaty was um, actually uh, we Parato and Prendigas was actually published um, well before David did his book, but we've been working on the idea of giving the case context almost in parallel and, and together as well, because we tend to frequent the same conferences and, 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 and events. So that's been really useful. And it's, if you are really interested in this area, I think it's definitely worth reading both books, uh, because there, there's definitely, um, you won't find much about Prendergast. The, the person or the professional in David's book, but you'll find a lot about uh, the kind of arguments that, that I was making about historiography earlier on. It's actually quite, slightly off on a tangent, it's actually quite exciting as a legal hist historian to have a, an era of uh, legal history or a particular focus that you know more than one person is engaging with. Um, and this, you know, this case uh, has become has become uh, an example of where you know, different legal historians in New Zealand can give their views, which from my point of, professional point of view is, is very exciting. Okay, that's Government House sitting on um, Parliament Hill there, and now replaced uh, by the, the Beehive. Prendergast was acting governor or administrator, the technical term. They did have big debates about what exactly what it should be called. Um, several times, and for uh, lengthy times as well, uh, in terms of um, you know, months rather than just days. So this is in a period, of course, where if one governor's gone, sailed off, the other governor's, the governor's gonna take a bit of time to sail to New Zealand, and in that intervening period, Prendergast steps up as Chief Justice and takes over. Um, and so he does this a number of times, but his most controversial time that he does it is during uh, the uh, controversy over Parihaka in, in Taranaki, and Prendergast is one who signs a proclamation allowing the invasion of Parihaka, and so that's that's a focus of the book as well. So what you get with Prendergast, and I think one of the reasons he has become the legal villain, uh, is, is, it's not just we Parato, it's not just the treaty, it's not just native title, it's also Parihaka, and it's also the latter stages of the New Zealand wars, because from 1865 to 1870, so um, Kuti and Te and, and those guerrilla warfare campaigns that are going on at the time, Prendergast is Attorney General, he's given the, giving the government advice, he's representing the government in, in, in cases to do with this situation. He's He's a key player uh, as the government's main legal man during the, the second half uh, of the New Zealand wars. So there's actually a number of different different episodes in his life which, which you could argue have given him uh, this title. It's still 
still overall a minority of his professional career. Uh, one thing this book tries to do is to give the entirety. Uh, but for us today, it's, it's the most uh, interesting and, and relevant probably to our current debates. In terms of writing this book as a historian, as a, as a legal historian, I was lucky, uh, and I probably wouldn't have pursued it if I hadn't been lucky, in terms of having obviously lots of official documentation, but also had personal papers as well. Uh, there wasn't a massive amount of personal papers, but definitely enough to uh, work with in writing a biography. So I didn't have the problem that, say, Alex Frame and Janet November had with uh, Salmond and Ethel Benjamin, where they basically didn't have any of the personal papers. So what you get is a biography of the professional career, which is vital and fascinating, but you miss the person because of that lack of, of um, diaries, letters, uh, personal correspondence. It took a while to, to get and to find uh, that correspondence in relation to Prendergast. Some of it was very easy to find, some of it not so easy to find. But once found, I think it provides a well-rounded view of the person. So the book includes both the personal and the professional. Uh, Prendergast didn't have any children. Uh, he was um, uh, married. He had a nephew in New Zealand um, who he basically treated as a son. He had brothers, both of whom ended up um, in what was called at the time of uh, lunatic asylums. Uh, so he was, he had his wife's family, his wife's nephews and nieces, of which there are still descendants in Wellington today, and he again treated them um, like his, uh, his family as well, or his sons and, and daughters. He died rich as well, and he left them a lot of money uh, and a lot of land. And it's that sort of interesting personal um, material that, that occurs during the book as well. It, I don't know if you'd call it a tragic life, personally. Uh, in many ways, you could see him as someone who was, uh, by all accounts, happily married, had a strong um, social network. Um, but in terms of the things that happened to those closest to him, his, his brothers, his, his parents as well, his sister dies young, um, there's definitely tragedy within that life. So the book, I think I've probably given, given a pretty good coverage of, of what you can find in the book. Uh, the, the only, um, I suppose, I don't want to put people off uh, reading it or buying it, um, it's available at Victoria University Press um, or at Unity Bookstore and um, $40, so uh, if you haven't read it or bought it and you want to, that's where you can find it, um, obviously in the libraries as well. But if you're not from a legal background or not particularly interested in, 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 in legal uh, technical legal issues, it's probably about 40 pages in the middle that you could happily skip over. Um, they had to be in there. They had to be in there because it's written as both a lawyer and a historian and without being able to provide not only what we might find interesting as a historical community, sort of, sort of things I've talked about, but what was his impact in terms of, say, uh, real property or tort or um, trust law, you know, if you're a lawyer or a legal historian, you're going to find that really fascinating and vital, and you need to know it. For someone who was Chief Justice for 24 years, during which New Zealand was beginning to get its common law, its New Zealand common law, as opposed to what it inherited from England. 
Uh, but it's yeah, it doesn't necessarily make fascinating reading for for non-lawyers. So I'd just give you that that warning. The rest of it's fascinating um, to to anyone to anyone. So in terms of the question, Bruno asked legal villain question mark. Do I think he's a legal villain? I suppose I've probably answered it. Uh, the idea was not so much to give a categorical answer. To give a categorical answer probably goes against the, the thesis that I just outlined. Uh, he's not someone, I mean, I think as a biographer, you can really come to, to like someone. Uh, and I think it's a danger to a biographer as well to really, you know, they become your hero or you become to venerate them in some way. I definitely didn't fall into that trap with Prendergast. I don't find him um, particularly likable. Um, but on the other hand, I was fascinated and, and um, informed to, to learn just about what impact he had on New Zealand in so many different areas uh, and to try and take that and put it together and say, okay, overall, this is the influence of James Prendergast on New Zealand's history. So, yeah, any questions that, that people have about anything in the book, um, more than happy to, to discuss or wonder if you could tell us a bit more about uh, his thinking behind the nullity statement. There must have been some uh, perspective, some line of reasoning, which must have at the time had some sense of legal plausibility for him to come to that conclusion. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it brief. There's definitely more, quite a lot in the book about that and also in, in David Williams' book as well. Uh, important to note that, that, again, it's Richmond and Prendergast who are coming up with this decision. Uh, and David argues that Richmond possibly had a, had more influence on the decision than Prendergast, even though it was in Prendergast's name. I tend to go with the safer option is that it was very much a joint decision. In terms of the nullity, the argument goes is that uh, Māori didn't have capacity to enter into an international treaty. That, and, and if you read the language of the time, it reflects the language of the time. Uh, so we're not at an advanced stage of civilization whereupon they could um, treaty with a uh, uh, the British Empire, and therefore it didn't have standing in international law and was in effect. I mean, the whole quote is that um, refers to the cession of sovereignty um, to the extent that you know Māori was thought to cede sovereignty in the in the treaty. It's a simple nullity, of course. Ironically, the tribunal end of last year came to a similar conclusion but from a completely different perspective that if you remember from the stage one Northland inquiry the argument that Māori didn't think they were ceding sovereignty and Prendergast says that they didn't cede sovereignty because it's they didn't have any sovereignty to cede so you can see that they come in some ways to the same conclusion but from vastly different uh, perspectives and with different um, uh, results. In terms of the, the line of law as you'll find in this book and in David's as well, it's to do with international law and to which precedents they're following in international law. So within the judgment, Prendergast and Richmond cite their sources. They say this is the line of international thinking that we're following. They look at other uh, decisions um, made. They, they, they critique the Marshall decisions in the, in the States. They also look at some of our other British colonies. Uh, and they go with a particular line of reasoning for which they have precedent. The argument is that... The, as we know as, as lawyers, this is not uncommon, that there was another equally strong line of reasoning that they could have gone down to recognise Māori as having capacity. But the precedents are all there. So with, within the decision itself, um, you can argue that, you know, that, that, that they got it wrong or that um, it's not that convincing, but it's, it's definitely done in accordance with 
uh, judicial, judicial decision making. They found the law, they applied it to the facts, and they came to the conclusion. And at the time, they would not have thought that they were doing anything particularly radical or um, even controversial uh, in that application. So I hope that kind of answers. What about the fact that the treaty was never approved by Parliament? Yes, yeah, so they go into, they, they do go into the decision, uh, Prendergast goes into some detail in the decision about the, the place of the treaty within New Zealand's domestic um, legal system, the fact that it only has a moral, well he says in terms of it ceding sovereignty, it's a nullity, but that, that's particularly specific to Article 1. He says that it only has a moral impact on the government. It doesn't have any binding impact. It hasn't been specifically incorporated into domestic legislation. Therefore, it kind of sits there, and the government, in a paternalistic way, should take some note of its obligations under it, but doesn't need to do anything more than that. So it wasn't a complete, it wasn't a complete um, denial of the treaty. It was the quote itself is a denial of the cession of sovereignty that Māori couldn't do that, but if you look at other aspects of the treaty, in particular Article 2, there are some moral obligations on the government, should the government wish to fulfil them. It's up to the government. I mean, throughout the decision, there's this very strong line that the Crown should be able to do whatever it wants, you know, that, that, it, that it has the radical ownership of the land in New Zealand, it has the ability to make unilateral decisions about status of land, and that while it be, you know, the Crown has the option of um, taking a, a paternal approach to protecting Māori, ultimately they can do what they want. This is really a contextual question of curiosity. You said he was the Attorney General. Today the Attorney General is in Cabinet. So he was really, in effect, our Solicitor General. Now, I'm just wondering, when did the Attorney General enter Cabinet? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's one I that, that there's quite a bit about in the book because of the fluid nature of the position of Attorney General at the time. So what happens when Prendergast is first appointed, so 1865, 1866, he is a, a politician. He sits in the in the Legislative Council um, uh, representing Otago and he is um, part of the government in a, in a rather awkward way, um, but he is noted in Hansard, you can see him there as, as listed um, as Attorney General with the other ministers. 1867, he becomes, as you say, a non-political Attorney General and effectively a Solicitor General. Uh, the sort of He takes the sort of roles that we'd expect the Solicitor General to take today. And that continues up until 1875. And when Prendergast moves to the bench, the government takes the opportunity to uh, reconfigure. And from then on, the attorney there is a Solicitor General, and the Attorney General has that political nature. It's amazing that he came from Otago uh, in the early days, and he, the, after the desecration of Parahaka, Parahaka, they ended up with the, the prophets in there, and the, and the various uh, mm. prisons mm. that were taken down to, to, to Dunedin, incarcerated down there. What was the reasoning behind the invasion of Parihaka anyway? Did you have that in your book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, what I do have in the book is a, um, there's many references to, to, to the literature around Parihaka and the, the Dick Scott book and, and, and um, Hazel Riceborough and others who have written about why it happened and how it happened. And my focus is on Prendergast's role and looking to see how, what culpability he has. Uh, we know he signed the document, um, but it I mean, it's a formulaic, symbolic signing, of course. Even at that point, the governor is being told what to do by the ministers, the responsible ministers. But that said, 
Um, the, I mean, the main reasoning behind the invasion, I would argue, is that here was a uh, threat to the government's authority, um, the way the government saw it as a threat. It was a non-violent, very effective protest movement that was going on. It was getting a lot of um, publicity. It was had a lot of power. Uh, and they thought, well, um, we, need to, we need to make sure that, um, that it doesn't grow uh, and we will try and, and get rid of it. Um, and when you look at the people involved in the decision that, that are normally associated um, with it, I mean, it's what I suppose you'd call a, a, the, the conservatives of New Zealand politics at the time. And, yeah, so the invasion, as, as we know, took place and Pātehaka was dismantled. Yeah.